Hello and welcome back to the All or Something podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Elise. I am a certified personal trainer and an online coach, and I run a business called The Soul Method, where my mission is to help others gain strength and confidence under the barbell using a mind-body-soul approach. Today, we are going to be talking about diet culture and kind of the history and the origin of this um, ever pervasive notion that we should be aiming to be as small as possible by any means necessary. While I was researching for this episode, I fell down quite a rabbit hole and it's one of those things where you just pull on a loose thread and it just keeps unraveling more and more and more. So this will be merely scraping the surface, but I'm excited to kind of lay the groundwork for us to continue having conversations. So this will really be to kind of get us all on the same page, I imagine. So yeah, diet culture. We're going to talk about the origin and history, a brief history of it, and then talk about what it means in our day-to-day lives, how we can recognize it, how we can push back against it, and how we can fight the harmful effects that it creates. To get started, I think it's important to define diet culture so we all know what we're talking about. I have a couple of definitions here that I'm going to read you. The first one comes from the Women's Studies International Forum by Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne, Australia. And this was a study done, I believe, in 2021 that where they the whole purpose of the study was to define the term diet culture. It's been around for quite some time, but it didn't have... A concrete proper definition, I guess. So they took 118 participants who challenged diet culture and came to the conclusion that diet culture is characterized by a conflation of weight and health, including myths about food and eating and a moral hierarchy of bodies derived from patriarchal, racist and capitalist forms of domination. That might sound like a complicated and heavy definition because it is, but I have another one here from Christy Harrison who breaks it down even further. Christy Harrison is a registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, a journalist, and a podcast host, as well as the author of books like The Wellness Trap and Anti-Diet. Christy Harrison says that diet culture is a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, which means you can spend your whole life thinking you're irreparably irreparably broken just because you don't look like the impossibly thin ideal. It promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, which means you feel compelled to spend a massive amount of time, energy, and money trying to shrink your body, even though the research is very clear that almost no one can sustain intentional weight loss for more than a few years. It demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others, which means you're forced to be hypervigilant about your eating, ashamed of making certain food choices and distracted from your pleasure, your purpose, and your power. 
and it oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of quote-unquote health, which disproportionately harms women, femmes, trans folks, people in larger bodies, people of color, and people with disabilities, damaging both their mental and physical health. And if you're interested, I'm going to go ahead and leave some extra articles and resources from Christy Harrison in the show notes for you to further your own uh, investigation, I guess, or do a little bit more research. These definitions are big and complex and multifaceted and intertwined with so many different parts of our current society, especially here in the United States. And it's kind of a lot to work through. So pushing back against this idea of diet culture might feel really tough. It might make us feel a little bit defensive and it might take a lot of time to fully understand some of the components that we're going to be talking about today. I also want to acknowledge the fact that these are things that are affecting all of us, but like those definitions emphasized, it disproportionately harms certain groups of people. I am someone that lives in a straight-sized, abled body, and it can be a little bit easier, I think, for me to talk about dismantling diet culture as somebody that doesn't experience some of the discrimination and biases and harmful effects that we'll talk about a little bit later on in this episode. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge, but I think it's also important for me to use this position that I have where some people might look at me and automatically assume my health or wellness status just because of how they view fitness or how they view me. If you take one thing away from this episode, I want us to remember that you cannot tell someone's health just by looking at them. And it's not your business anyways. I was really curious about where diet culture came from. And turns out it's been around for quite a while. If you look up diet culture on Google and the origins or history behind it, the first few results you see will probably reference ancient Greeks and this is kind of the start of diet culture, but it wasn't really the same as how we know it today. There was this idea that moderation was virtuous, which will prevail throughout all of history, pretty much. And there was a um, introduction to this idea of an aesthetic body, as we can tell from all of the artifacts and statues and sculptures that we have from that time period. And this is the first kind of example of manipulating the way that you look through diet and exercise that we have um, evidence of. However, for the most part, throughout all of history, body fat represented prosperity and protection against certain diseases and illnesses. And it changed with the development of more technology and advancements within our society. So people were starting to have easier access to food. Um, certain folks were living less active lives, particularly the middle and upper class. And there were medical advancements, transportation advancements. These are all going to come into play. So right off the bat, we're seeing that diet culture is just inherently tied to things like industrialization and the political landscape and really big industries that start to come onto the scene. 
if we're going to jump back to the 1830s and we are introduced to Sylvester Graham. If his name sounds familiar, you might know that he is attributed the creation or invention of the graham cracker. Based off of what I read, I don't think that he himself created the graham cracker, but some of his beliefs around diet were that refined or processed flours were very unhealthy. And so people kind of took that and ran with it, creating all sorts of different foods that followed his rules. He was a vegetarian and a staunch advocate for vegetarianism. His whole shebang was kind of based off of his religion. He was a Presbyterian minister and he pushed a very strong linking of morality to food and the body. This is a link that we see traced back since the medieval times where this idea was that suffering was holy and that if you were living in a larger body, it was a sign that you were immoral or did not have self-discipline. He would preach that by changing your diet to follow his set of guidelines, you would be less likely to succumb to impure thoughts or... I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this, or you would behave in a more holy manner. You can do some more research on that if you're interested. And Grahamism really took off after the cholera pandemic when it seemed that the followers of his diet were having better outcomes when it came to surviving this pandemic. It turned into more than just a diet. Think the 1830s version of the 75 hard. Like people were cold plunging and doing all sorts of behaviors that we still see being linked to health and wellness today. And then in 1863, William Banting enters the scene and William Banting wrote what is largely considered one of the first ever diet books. And he wrote his book after losing a significant amount of weight over the course of a year. And his diet, it was comprised mainly of meat and liquor and very few carbs. He came about this way of eating after a friend of his passed on some information about a diet that was originally meant for diabetes management at a medical seminar and decided to try it out. So he wrote this book detailing his exact diet and habits and the results and kind of his experience through that. And I actually scoured the internet to find this book and read it. And I don't recommend you doing the same. It is full of just really harmful fat phobic rhetoric, but his targeted audience was upper-class men at the time. During this period, dieting was seen as a masculine thing, which was really interesting to me to read about. This idea was that men were kind of getting soft. We see kind of a mirror of that still today. Throughout all of time, there has been this fake fear that men aren't quote unquote men anymore. But through dieting, you could exercise this manly trait of discipline and willpower. His diet really takes off and it becomes so popular that people start using the word banting to mean dieting. So instead of saying, oh, I'm not going to eat that, I'm dieting, they would say I'm banting. And to circle back to one of the first points that I talked about where body fat represented prosperity and protection, now we have some 
medical advancements and technological advancements and we have vaccines and medicine and so body fat is no longer as necessary as it was before in terms of protection from certain diseases and illnesses. It also becomes kind of a status thing where the wealthiest people are kind of flexing by saying, oh, I am depriving myself because it is a choice, not because I have to, which seems like a really weird flex. During the time of William Banting, there is this pull, this draw to achieve this Victorian sick. People are trying to look as frail and thin as possible with self-starvation. And as we move further through the timeline, it just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. In the 18 and 1900s, the BMI chart is born and BMI has its own very complicated and problematic history, but it was created by insurance companies and was never meant to be used for clinical settings. Many health organizations have now recognized BMI as being incredibly unethical and deeply flawed, but it really starts to take over and push the progress of diet culture forward quite quickly. By the 1920s, calorie counting and diet culture is very, very normalized. And at this point in time, it is largely participated in by women. There are magazines that are now being published like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, The Queen, Ladies Home Journals. And through these magazines, we have ads for the craziest products. I saw ads for things like soap that promised to wash away your fat or reducing salons where you would go and stand in between these giant like steel rollers that were meant to like roll the fat off of your lower body. These magazines are encouraging weight management and for women to pursue this idea of a beautiful, perfect, successful and feminine wife, mother and hostess. It's all about preserving femininity now. This is happening alongside the rise of the flapper girl known for and characterized by a very thin and slender, frail looking body. In the 1960s, Weight Watchers comes onto the scene. And in the 1970s, we see the Adkins diet, both of which are still around today. From there on, there is just an explosion of fad diets that evolve and progress. And looking through the history of all of these crazy diets, you kind of get whiplash. There is this kind of cyclical nature. So we're constantly ping-ponging between things like demonizing carbs and then demonizing fats, what foods should be paired together. All of the current modern diets that are around today, you can trace back through history. The one thing that really stuck out to me was that it was so clear that it's never been about true health and wellness. We have things like doctors recommending cigarettes for weight management. There was also something in the, I think, early 2000s. It was a cotton ball diet where you literally ate cotton balls. Please don't do this. And this shows me everything that I need to see about diet culture. Like those definitions I read at the beginning mentioned, diet culture thrives on this idea that is so easy to convince people of that weight is equivalent to health. And these are not the same thing. Diet culture continues to be incredibly prevalent, but has gotten a little bit sneakier, but the effects remain the same. 
diet culture cultivates low self-esteem, poor mental health, a higher risk of developing an eating disorder. So on a personal level, we see really poor outcomes. And then on a bigger, more macro level, we see discrimination and bias and stigma that disproportionately affects BIPOC and people in larger bodies. This weight stigma or bias or discrimination can often be justified as looking out for someone's health and wellness. But if you look at the impacts and the consequences, these are not in favor of promoting someone's best life. Some examples include poor mental health, low self-esteem and negative body image, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, social rejection and isolation. And something that has happened and continues to happen today is that certain people are denied proper and adequate medical care or even life-saving medical procedures. The participation in a lot of these trend and fad diets falls under that all or nothing umbrella that we talk about where uh, you go all in until you just can't anymore and you swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum. This results in something known as weight cycling, which is the rapid gain or loss of a significant amount of weight in a short amount of time, which contributes to increased health risks like cardiovascular events. At the end of the day, the diet industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that profits off the expectation and the knowledge that their diets aren't going to work. In 1992, the National Institutes of Health did research and concluded that diets don't work. And the vast majority of people who seek intentional weight loss regain most, all of it or more in the following years. So even if we were to take the assumption that weight equals health, this has not been working. And beyond that, you may or may not be surprised at the sheer amount of lawsuits brought up against these diet companies like Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem. These lawsuits were for deceptive advertising at best and at worst for causing some very severe health effects. Diet culture is something that harms all of us and we've all been exposed to it probably at a very young age. It's everywhere we look on social media, on TV, in the magazines, in daily conversations. When we learn how to recognize and push back against this harmful diet culture narrative, not only are we doing this for ourselves on an individual level and a quality of life for just us level, we're creating space for a more equitable and free society. Diet culture has just gotten a little bit sneakier over the years, and we're going to talk about ways to recognize diet culture right now. If it promises you a quick fix, an overnight transformation, this is a good sign that it's diet culture and they're lying to you. If the words cleanse or detox or clean food are mentioned, this is probably diet culture. Same thing with assigning morality to food. Things like calling foods cheat foods or guilt-free foods. This is a clear sign that it's diet culture. There are many diets these days that say that they are not diets. 
um, things like intermittent fasting, things like Noom, they'll use terms like wellness or lifestyle. It follows along trends like the that girl trend or the girl dinner trend that maybe didn't start because of diet culture, but have quickly been co-opted by the diet culture narrative. This idea that you can achieve this perfect body, this aesthetic lifestyle if you eat quote unquote clean foods and lose weight. If it demonizes whole food groups or tells you what you can and cannot eat or that there is one right perfect way to eat that is the secret key that you've been missing, this is diet culture. Overall, if it tells you what to eat, when to eat, or how to eat, it's a diet. A focus on weight-based transformations that I see all over my Instagram, this is diet culture and it's not good for us. Diet culture also shows up when we have a negative association tied to fatness, which is perpetuated by things like complementing weight loss. We never know what is happening behind the scenes. You never know why somebody gained or lost weight. And I just take the approach of not commenting on people's bodies. Using the term fat in a negative way, this is a result of diet culture. And then we have the monster of social media and the constant use of filters and Photoshop and editing and all sorts of different trends that I see online, like a couple that I mentioned, but also I'm thinking of the people that post the what I eat in a day videos that are have like a 10 second clip in the beginning of them just flexing their six pack abs as if you were to believe that if you eat like them, you would look like them. Listen, if somebody is telling you that they have the secret or that they can promise you weight loss or a body transformation, they are lying to you. They might not know that they're lying to you, but this is something that cannot be promised. This promise leads us to believe that there is one right way to have a body, that if you don't look like the idealized beauty standard, you are wrong or you've done something wrong or you're lazy. And these things are not true. We know that weight loss is so much more complicated than just calories in, calories out, regardless of what the people on the internet are screaming at you. And again, there is no one right way to have a body. In terms of like the fitness industry, I see this push for certain workouts that are marketed towards women promising to elongate and tone which again is not really a thing toning just means building muscle while also losing body fat and you can't really elongate your body that's not how that works and this continues to drive this fear of weight or muscle gain this fear of getting bulky if the diet industry really did only just want us all to be healthy and well, we would not be scaring women out of the weight room. There are so many benefits to resistance training, things that have nothing to do with physique or aesthetics, things that will become increasingly important the older that we get, things like improving bone density. Actually, I think I'm going to do a whole episode on the benefits of resistance training here, um, but there are so many benefits and they are long-term benefits, not just immediate, I want to have a summer body benefits. It is this whole web of diet culture talk and diet culture as a prominent idea in our society. Again, it starts us, it starts really young. There are 
kids who are worried about how much they weigh and worried about if they should go on a diet. When I was growing up, my first introduction to diet culture was through a lot of the women in my life. This a constant kind of apology for consuming certain foods or justification for consuming certain foods. And on top of that, I was an avid Tumblr user in my early, early teens. And there was this whole aesthetic that was really popular of this Tumblr girl who was just a really sad, skinny girl. And this was something that the internet told me that I wanted to achieve regardless of how I felt about it. It was just so prominent everywhere I looked that I figured, oh, well, I guess this is how I'm supposed to feel. This, We are raised in a way that tells us we are supposed to feel ashamed about our bodies. We are supposed to aim to continue shrinking in many ways. Diet culture promises us that it will fix us. It promises us that we will be happier, healthier, wealthier, that we will feel free and confident. And this is not the case. That power and freedom comes on the other side of diet culture when we reject it. When we free up all of that space in our brain to care about other things, to give our time, attention, and energy to things that actually matter. Rejecting diet culture looks like body acceptance and food freedom for us and for others. Again, just having more capacity to prioritize other things. Maybe they're things that do actually benefit and further our health and wellness. Maybe they're things like relationships or career. I'm thinking about all of the times throughout my entire life from the time I was very, very young to even these days, right? Where I have spent too much time thinking about my body or the way that I looked or how I could look better, smaller, prettier, or comparing myself to the people around me. And I'm just imagining what could be accomplished if I took that energy and put it towards something else. Regardless of who you are or how you identify, I promise you're so much more than your body. There's a quote that I really like that says, your body is the least interesting thing about you. We are so much more than that. We are full, complex, multifaceted humans with lives and ideas and opinions and thoughts and dreams and ambitions and shrinking ourselves down continuously does not make all of those things happen. Diet culture is really about power dynamics and control this whole phenomenon of policing other people's bodies and rewarding certain people while punishing others. It might be easy to recognize that this is harmful and it's not benefiting most of us, but it can be really challenging to combat in a society that does give social currency to smaller and abled bodies. But on a day-to-day personal life level, Rejecting diet culture could look like not commenting on other people's eating or asking others not to comment on your eating or to comment on your body, not complimenting other people's weight loss. When it comes to shutting down diet talk, um, I'll just share a couple of different strategies. I just have a couple. One, you can walk away from the conversation. Excuse yourself. Go get a snack. Go to the bathroom. Go get a drink. 
just remove yourself if this is something that feels like a sensitive subject. You could also just change the topic of the conversation to something a little bit more neutral. Or you can communicate what you are experiencing and say, hey, this kind of talk is kind of hard for me to listen to. I'm really working on my relationship with food and my body. And this, this doesn't feel like a conversation that I really want to have right now. Can we talk about something else? Or I would appreciate if we didn't use that kind of language around food and bodies. This has been kind of a tough episode to record simply because I feel like I'm just leaving so much out and kind of glossing over things or not acknowledging certain aspects, but I keep reminding myself that this is a conversation that can and will be continued. So that is all I have for us today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate the time that you've taken to listen to my little podcast here. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you can let me know by leaving a rating and review for the All or Something podcast. If you're interested in more of me and my work, I do have an email newsletter that is fairly new and I'm still working on being really good and consistent about it, but it's a good way to stay up to date. I also have a monthly training subscription for $30 a month with a free seven-day trial where you get monthly workouts program for you, exercise demos, and it's all in a fun little app. And if you are looking for more information about that or about just me in general, you can find me on Instagram at the soul method, soul spelled S-E-O-U-L, just like the city. New episodes of the All or Something podcast go live every other Thursday at 10 a.m. PST, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you soon.